Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the goodness of your word. Um, and even as we run into in the, the, the simple time of a scope of a service, uh, technical difficulties and masks and uh, viruses and all of the things that are going around, man, it makes us long. Uh, it does two things. One, it shows us the way in which sin is uh, not just spiritual rebellion against God, but it has consequences all over our world. That you made a world that was meant to work perfectly in all the ways, and, and we're, it's not. But then it shows us how wonderful and how pervasive your redemption is, where in the immediate we are restored spiritually to you, but one day you promised the total and final restoration of all things. So Lord, I pray that in light of the letter of Second Peter, we ought not be those who forget the weight of sin and the grace of God, the, the wonderful redemption that is for us in Jesus Christ. We pray you bless our time together in this text. Um, for your glory and the good of this church and its mission in this city. We pray this in your name. Amen. So in 1924, Eric Little won gold at the Olympics in the 400-meter sprint. And afterwards, they asked him how he managed to keep such a uh, uh, gold medal pace. He answered in his thick Scottish accent. He said, the secret of my success over the 400 meters is that I run the first 200 as fast as I can. Then for the second 200 meters, with God's help, I run faster. We started First Peter a while ago, and with God's help, we're going to get through Second Peter a little faster. It's a shorter letter. It's the second of the two that Peter has written in the New Testament. And he's after, really, an extension of what he was talking about in the first letter. And that is Christian hope and Christian conduct in a sometimes hostile world. He's writing to a collection of churches kind of across Asia Minor, uh, and he's writing to them because they're beginning to feel out of place about how their faith in Jesus, belonging to Christ through faith, puts them at odds with the world um, that does not belong to Christ. In 1 Peter, which we just finished last week, um, we saw his big theme, and it was to actually... Um, call believers to hold firm in the face of those who are challenging their confession of Christ. Those who stand as uh, enemies to their calling and election, those who want them to not believe the gospel. They want them to be convinced that it is false. This second letter uh, is written only probably a few years after the first letter was written, but actually in that time frame, what has happened is uh, the threat to the church has clarified a little bit. And at this point, it is still not imperial persecution on the church. It's not persecution coming explicitly from any government structure. Instead, what happens is the opposition that's coming to the church in Peter's day is social pressure and hostility from those who actually at one time or even currently claim to be Christians. And yet their life is completely out of line with Christian doctrine. In other words, this critique of Christianity, this opposition of it, is coming from people 
who knew or have familiarity with the Christian faith, but who find living out that faith and obeying Jesus is something which you can totally disregard. In fact, it's utterly foolishness when you consider what it looks like to find joy in the world and live for the world. And here is this faithful church kind of scattered across the area, separate churches, and they are trying to be faithful amidst what is a growing pressure from society. They're trying to be faithful amidst internal pressure of fighting sin. And while they're realizing that discipleship is wonderfully simple but difficult, here comes this group of scoffers. And they say, relax, live a little. You don't look like you're enjoying this. And central to this critique of Christianity that's prevalent in 2 Peter are two denials, two theological denials that these scoffers are making. They deny first that Jesus will come again. They deny a second coming and a new heavens and a new earth. And they also deny the reality of a future day of judgment. If we look at our own world today, even those who claim to be spiritual but not religious They have some affinity in their heart for God. We see that these two denials are still present, and we see the implications of those denials all over the place. For instance, if we deny that Jesus is coming back again, that he is going to set everything right in the world and create a new heavens and a new earth, what we really deny is the certainty of future joy. And if there is no promise, no assurance of joy, of pleasure, or of satisfaction in the gospel to come then it makes sense that we should seek to satisfy our desires for joy in everything the world offers. That we must follow our heart and squeeze every drop of joy out of this world because there's nothing guaranteed. That's what happens if you reject the second coming. When that is coupled with a denial of the day of judgment, it means that you get to pursue all of your own personal satisfaction at no fear of repercussions or judgment. Not only should you pursue what makes you happy, but there's really nothing to bind the limits of that unless you want to impose those limits on your own. Who gets to decide to what length you can pursue your joy and the effect it has on others? Who gets to decide if your pursuit of joy is good or it is bad, if it is moral or if it is immoral? And this kind of individuality ultimately cannibalizes itself and leaves a wake of destruction for those who are around you. In other words, what is happening is there's a growing divide in Peter's day between the knowers and the feelers. You all know the types. I'm a knower. My wife is a feeler. As a knower, when I'm presented with a circumstance, I tend to overly rationalize things and don't act until I have like my spreadsheet completely there, which means I miss out on a lot. I'm prone to passivity. I can be inactive. I can be a burden. My wife is a feeler. If she feels like it's right, she's going to jump in with both feet. Sometimes that leads to her getting in situations that she realized she hadn't fully thought through. And for Peter, this war, between, this war is between feelers who feel confident. They feel satisfied, and yet there is no real reason or fact to qualify that emotion. There's no reason they should feel this way. And then he's writing to knowers. Knowers who say they know something, but they still don't feel confident enough to act in light of what it is they're experiencing. 
there's this tension between the knowers and the feelers. And I'm sure you have leanings towards each way in different spheres. And Peter's goal in 1 Peter is to make knowers feel and to make feelers become knowers. But he's going to do that through the gospel. Because it is the gospel which is the knowledge of God which saves, but it is also the gospel which is the experience of making us new in Jesus Christ. The gospel becomes the basis of our experience, but it also becomes the basis of our knowledge. It shapes our hearts, our head, and our hands. And we need this kind of grounding. Because even as perhaps the city's ruling on Thursday exposes, if all we have is the ecosystem of our intellect or our emotion... Sometimes those left on their own fail to provide the guidance we need to either act or to live. But God in his word, as we'll see going through 1 Peter, has given us all things pertaining to life and to godliness. Peter wants us to act. And today he's going to open up his letter and in a sense he's going to address everyone. But I think he is leaning more towards talking to the feelers in the room today. Next week... He's going to step on the toes of you knowers. Today he's talking to the feelers. And each of us are prone to feel that to some degree. If you're a knower, you do feel. If you're a feeler, you do think. But what we're after today, his big point in verses 1 and 2, his introduction to his second letter is this. That for the sake of your emotions, you ought to know Jesus more deeply. For the sake of your emotions, you ought to know Jesus more deeply. And today, he wants to speak to your emotions, whether you think yourself as more of an intellectual or more of an emotional person. He wants to speak to your emotions and remind them of two things from a gospel perspective. First, that you are qualified by the righteousness of Jesus. And secondly, that you are comforted by the knowledge of Jesus. Excuse me, qualified by the righteousness of Jesus. That's going to be our first point comforted by the knowledge of Jesus. That's going to be our second point. So let me read for us our whole text today, a whole two verses, and then we're going to come back and camp out on verse one. So this is what Rick just read for us. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ. So something unique about this text is here, if you are, have Jehovah's Witnesses who are at your door, here this text equates Jesus as God in the Greek, of our God, Jesus Christ. So that is free for you, but the main point here is that Peter is introducing himself to his church, and he introduces himself as a servant, or depending on your translation, a slave, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's providing his credentials to the church. But then after he introduces himself, he actually reminds his church of their credentials. He's reminding believers what qualifies them as members of God's church. And this is our first point today, that they are qualified by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, I wonder if you've had moments where your faith has been shaken, where there's been some threat, be it an experience, be it a facet of knowledge, that has kind of shaken your confidence in what you claim to believe in Scripture. I was grading some papers for a theology class the other day, and I was grading the paper of one woman who was expressing her distress um, at the doubts her college-age daughter was experiencing. 
She was raised in a Christian home. She professed faith, but she went to a public university. And it was there in the public university where she encountered this critique of Christianity that caused her to doubt her faith, to doubt everything that she had believed up until that point. And Peter is writing to a church that is facing a critique. And it's actually a critique that strikes at our heart because the basis of the critique is, is this bringing you joy and is this bringing you satisfaction? The scoffers are saying to this church, which 1 Peter shows us, is becoming acquainted with suffering. And they're saying, if being a Christian is so wonderful, why do you make it seem so hard? If your gravestone looks like my gravestone, why not live the life we want to live and hope for the best at the end? If you've grown up in church, you've heard stories like Daniel in the lion's den, and perhaps the thrust of that sermon culminated with uh, the cry to dare to be a Daniel, that in the face of opposition of kings, you would have enough faith to respond like Daniel responded. Wouldn't that be great if we could stand up in a matter of life and death and have the faith of Daniel? Or maybe you're looking at the story of Elijah and his showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. If only you had the faith of Elijah in the hard moments of life. Or what of the readers of Peter's letter? They know Peter really well. He's written to them before. He has perhaps even helped plant some of these churches himself. And they know what Peter, their faithful brother, has been through. Peter, by experience and trial and error, his whole life shows the deep reality and joy of clinging to Jesus. Because he's tried all the options. Right On the night of Jesus' trial, Peter caved into outside, from outside pressure. They came and said, aren't you a follower of Jesus? He says, no, 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 no. Three times. He tried to take the affirmation of what was outside and validate himself. And it left him broken. But even after Jesus forgave him and recommissioned him for ministry, in his young ministry, we see that he caved to the pressure of those inside the faith. Those legalists who were fighting about circumcision. And Peter was chastised by the apostle Paul. So even in caving to those who seemed to be inside the faith but were legalists, that didn't satisfy him. And yet what this produced of trying to taste the affirmation of man from both those who are seemingly insiders and those who are obviously outsiders, it led to a Peter who was willing to be imprisoned and beaten for the sake of the gospel, who refused to keep quiet what God had given to him, and who is now writing this letter near his death in Rome, where the tensions of religion are at the highest cost. And what he's saying to his churches is don't be deceived. There is nothing better than faith in Jesus. If you've ever wondered what's behind door one or door two, I've kicked them down and it is nothing. And these churches perhaps are saying when their neighbors perhaps even some of the people that go to church with them, are pressuring them for things contrary to the Bible. They're probably saying, man, if I only had faith like Peter. And Peter opens up his letter and he says, you do. You do have a faith like me. He says, your faith is of equal standing with mine. More than that in verse 1, he says, your faith is of equal standing with ours. Who is the ours? It is probably Peter's companions and fellow apostles. 
To be an apostle is this office that Jesus himself instituted. It was one who was an eyewitness of Jesus, who was handpicked by Jesus, who was commissioned by Jesus. And Peter is saying, you, you today, who never saw Jesus, you who never audibly heard Jesus, you who never touched his resurrected body, you have the exact same faith as the apostles who were handpicked, hand-taught, and hand-commissioned. You have faith of the highest level. But that begs the question that's really important to Peter's letter here, is what is faith? My wife and I were sitting uh, early, I think Tuesday morning this week, so before I'd really dove into this text, and she asked me a question. She said, what, what do you think culture says faith is? What do you think? If you had to answer that question, our culture likes to talk about faith. You know, faith that the coronavirus. We have faith that we'll get through this, that the economy will stabilize. Any sports figure ever, regardless of the skill on their team, has faith that they can give a shot at the championship. What do you think faith is? I said that I think when we talk about faith culturally, it's kind of just this uh, unrepentant commitment to optimism. Do we just think things are going to go well? That we could just believe it well and the outcome will be good? And I think that that idea, culture's idea of faith, has actually overly permeated our Christian understanding of faith. You see, from a biblical writer's perspective, when they speak of faith, they are not speaking of faith as a blind commitment to optimism in the Christian life. Faith is not, from a biblical standpoint, just the faith that God will make all things right in the end. Faith, according to the biblical writers, is not even the admission that God exists. Faith is not simply giving your life to God. If you go up in the church, you know Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of things in which we do not see. But do you realize that is not the author's full definition of faith? Because after Hebrews 11.1 1 comes the rest of Hebrews 11, where we read about men and women faithfully following Jesus, and you get to Hebrews 12, verse 1, and what does he say? Therefore, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Romans 12.1 is the substance of Romans 11.1, 1, which means faith is not the confidence that when times are tough, you can overcome it. Faith is the confidence and the reality that Jesus already has. Faith is the confidence in what Jesus has done as the Son of God to save his people. Faith, according to Peter, isn't dependent upon the quality of the believer, but the quality of the one who is believed in. Did you notice that? Look back at verse 1, the second part. To those, he's talking to Christians, who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Faith is not the extension of your spiritual stamina. Faith is the response a broken sinner has when they see the surpassing worth of Jesus. And they say, that's my ticket. That's what I need. The value of faith in all of the rewards that come with it that is going to be talked about in the rest of 1 Peter stems not from your resolve, but actually from Jesus' righteousness. And we need this because if it's about our resolve, we become so introverted that we're always doubting our emotions. But here Peter is bringing this knowledge of how righteousness changes the way we understand and act as Christians. 
What does this mean? When it talks about Jesus' righteousness, that's a distinctly religious term, nowadays at least. Well, in writing to another church that is wrestling with anxiety, Paul says this to help explain it a little better. This is Colossians 1, verses 12 through 14. So it kind of picks up in mid-sentence. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. How has he qualified us to share an inheritance with the saints in light, the superstars of Christianity? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How has God qualified the churches Peter is writing to? How has God qualified the church in Colossae? Through the work of redemption in the beloved Son. In Him, in Jesus, you have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And I want to say this very carefully. Because we are a church that comes from the Reformed tradition. We did a sermon series preaching through the five solas of Christ alone, glory alone, scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone. Those are wonderful truths that I will lay down my life for when it comes to preaching the gospel of Jesus. However, I think that in our overly cultural Christian America, it is easy to take faith itself and make it the fourth member of the Trinity. Where the trust we actually have before God stems simply from faith and not God himself. You see, for many of us, we vocalize daily that we are saved by faith, and that is the wonderful truth of faith alone. The only thing you need to be saved by God is faith alone. But that faith must have as its object the only thing which is able to save by faith alone. Faith doesn't save you. Jesus does. Faith is simply what holds us to to Jesus. Peter says in 1 Peter 1 that faith is what guards you until Jesus finally and fully saves us. It's what holds us to him. What makes Christian faith, faith worth dying for, is the object of faith, Jesus What he has done. You see, our problem is bigger than anything we can imagine. Our problem is more emotional than we can ever fathom. It's a big one. It's that we are unrighteous. We have sinned against the holy and perfect God who created the world. And we started sinning from day one when we didn't worship him. We didn't acknowledge him. We scorned him. We shamed him. We silenced him. We've scandalized him. But Jesus, the eternal Son of God, never did. Jesus never sinned against God in heaven where he's been eternally. And then that Jesus miraculously took on flesh and was born as a human. You don't say, well, I could obey God if I lived in heaven. But this Jesus was born of a virgin and lived in this mess. And remained sinless through the course of his life. If you're a baseball fan, which is like maybe two of you in here, 
Um, and I'm okay with that. I'm not lobbying to be a baseball fan by any means. There's Christian liberty there. Um, and you shouldn't. It's boring. But the one time where I, as a casual baseball fan, will pay attention is when you get the notice that there's a pitcher nearing a perfect game. You see, a perfect game is when a single pitcher pitches a full nine innings. That's the entirety of a baseball game. Uh, and uh, unless there's extra innings, I'm not going to get into that. No one cares, okay? It's baseball. But anyway, they, they pitch an entire game without an opposing batter reaching base by error, by walk, or by hit. And Major League Baseball has been around for 150 years. In 150 years, they've played almost a quarter billion games. And of those quarter billion games, there are 23 men... None of them have done it twice who have thrown a perfect game. And so what happens is, you know, right around the fifth or sixth inning, people might call you to start paying attention. Seventh inning hits, people are tuned in, and you're watching every pitch, every swing, every foul ball, every out, until finally, the last out is called, and the scorecard is clean, and he has completed the improbable. He has pitched a perfect game, flawless. In the history of the world, it's estimated there have been 108 billion people who have lived. All of them have dirty scorecards. All of them might have even looked from a worldly standard to do well until they got social media, and then their soul just died. <laughs> but Jesus, in his birth, in his growth, in his life, and in his death, is the one man who turned in a perfect scorecard. The one man who played the game that God created to be played perfectly in whole reliance upon him. The one who didn't get burdened by the brokenness that was out there in the world. The one who was flawless, Jesus Christ. And the good news of the gospel is better than baseball. In a baseball field, there are all sorts of other men and they don't get to share in the title of a perfect game. But Jesus, our true brother, gives us, in all of our errors, his perfect record. He covers us in it. It counts for us. And he, in all of his purity, in all of his perfection, actually takes our errors, our walks, our dirty scorecard, and he is punished for them. You see, that perfect scorecard that Jesus earned is the righteousness that Peter is talking about. And to have received that righteousness of Jesus is to have received by faith the wonder of the gospel. To look at yourself and say, that's not perfect. But to look at him and say, he is. And if I want to be perfect, it's not coming from this. It's coming from Jesus. The only one who has done it. And we must realize that our faith is not rooted in us, but rooted in Christ's righteous work. Not even just the fact that Jesus died to show how much he loved you, but how much did he love you? Enough to give you his righteousness. And if we miss that, we'll struggle to endure. 
We're struggled to stand up to the critiques of our own emotions and our own experiences. In fact, look at how the author of Hebrews ties faith and righteousness and endurance together in Hebrews 10, verse 36. And so this is actually the passage that precedes his definition on faith. This is the root of why we need to understand what our faith is. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, and so now he begins to quote a prophet, Yet a little while, and the coming one will not delay. But my righteous shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back. We are not of those who are duped by critiques of Christianity. We are of those, not not of those who are destroyed, but he continues, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So when your emotions are tired and your emotions are telling you that you can't endure, that you might be missing out, that there might be something more enjoyable, more satisfying, or an easier way to wake it in life, what do you do? You look at what Jesus has done. You consider his righteousness that has brought you peace with God the Father. And you choose to trust in that. You trust in his completed work on the cross, which qualifies you to stand firm and endure when you feel that you cannot. And having this faith, looking to this Jesus, is not passive. It is not let go and let God. It is hold fast and lean into God. Understand the immense nature of what Jesus has done for you to bring you peace, to make you whole. You see, the mechanism by which we're saved is Christ's righteousness being given to us. But the experience of that is conversion. To have someone else's scorecard is to be counted as that person, not your own. That's what conversion is. To be covered in Jesus' righteousness means that we now consider ourselves in Christ and no longer who we once were. We no longer stand on the pile of our old record or our old identity. We stand on the record and identity and transformation of Christ. And to stand in Jesus, this is why it's good. He's hung up his glove. There are no more batters for Jesus to make an error with. He has finished it finally, perfectly, and fully. And nothing in this world will change the perfect life that Jesus lived for you. The life which brings you peace with God. So even when our experience tells us that we are missing the point, Christ stands to say, nothing can touch what I have done for you before God, in my righteousness. And your faith is believing that, in refusing to take the scorecard of someone else, in refusing to leverage your own scorecard. And so there's this reality that in dealing with campus ministry and and doing evangelism, you often have people who hear the gospel and they respond with this wonderful feeling that God is pleased with them. This wonderful feeling that they are living a good, satisfied life in all Peter wants to do is come into you and to help give you confidence in that experience. Why is it that you feel God is pleased with you? Well, if we understand that it's because Jesus' righteousness has saved us, we have something far more certain than our emotions, right? Because our faith will be shaken. Our emotions will be knocked off the rails by wearing a face mask and trying not to choke while you're singing. But in Jesus, when you see what his righteousness has done, which is accessed by faith, the wrath of God, which stood against your sins, has been turned to Christ. 
And the love of God, which was only for Christ, has been turned to you. And you know that that is your truth because Jesus is your Savior. Does that bring you rest? Rest from work, thinking that you need to polish up your scorecard if God is to accept you? Does it bring you peace? Peace when your heart is confused and condemnation seeks to cast doubt on your ability to endure. Do you see that Jesus hasn't changed even when your circumstances have? And because of that, when circumstances change, the confidence of Christ means that you can obey even when it seems costly, even when it seems you're the only one in a crowd of people calling you to do something against Christ. And that that decision and that encouragement, when you are encouraged to act in faith, do you realize that's not because of the quality of you? It's the wonderful fruit of gospel conversion that Jesus has changed you and that you've been saved by him. And I want to have a quick aside before we move on to our second point here um, because I learned something that I've never known before in preparing for this text this week. And the author, the, the scholar was comparing the letters of the New Testament. So if you look at letters like 1 Peter, or Colossians, Ephesians, those are epistles, which just mean letter. Um, when you look at the biblical letters that are written side by side with just the normal letters that you would write to like Aunt Norma back in Rome, um, what happens is they, they, they all typically have, just like when you're learning how to write letters in school, they all have a greeting. But New Testament letters distinctly write to the recipient with a level of personal nature and intimacy that is absent from the letters of the day. And so when I'm helping guys learning how to preach, and this is how it was talked to me, uh, was you want to ask yourself, what is the author accomplishing in this text? What is Peter accomplishing in verses 1 and 2? He's just saying hello. But how does he do it? By pulling the entire weight of the gospel into their life and rooting their identity and their experience inside of it. And so for us as a church, when we are greeting people in our gathering, in our home, in our city, does our hello represent the hello of the New Testament authors? Are we seeking to engage them in the way that God sees them? That they are either a sinner in need of grace or they are a sinner saved by grace and the solution for all of that is to point to the wonderful things that God has done for them. That our warm welcome and our contagious community is something different than they get at Walmart. Walmart has to hire greeters. God just makes converts. That is what our conversion should manifest in us. If we have been transformed by righteousness, then we know that we now live out of this wonderful transformation and we say, come and look at what we've got. The gospel produces this warm, welcoming nature which doesn't make sense in any other facet of life. See, I love this story of this Peter in Acts and he just healed a man and the crowd doesn't know what to do. Um, But in Acts chapter 4... Look at what the crowd concludes in looking at Peter and John. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, at this point, they saw Peter, they saw John, they would have seen you or me, and they said, That dude's not smart enough. That dude's not charismatic or affable 
He doesn't have smiling eyes. But that dude's been with Jesus. If conversion is first and foremost an encounter with the righteousness of Jesus himself, then every Christian starts being with Jesus. And our interactions and our trials are different because of the one whom we have experienced. Because this is where Peter doesn't stop. He says, first and foremost, you need to know what has qualified you. You feel shaken. That's okay. Your faith isn't shaken because your faith is rooted in the one who is not shaken. You will not sink back because Jesus will not sink back for you. But now he continues to go on. And he now says that this life of being with Jesus leads to a life of knowing Jesus. Look at verse 2 where Peter continues. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's our second point today. Not only are you qualified by the righteousness of Jesus, but what causes grace and peace to be multiplied to you? What causes you to experience comfort when life is uncomfortable? Knowing Jesus. To be saved by Jesus is to receive uh, by faith the righteousness of Jesus, but to experience comfort and grace multiplied to you is to continue to grow in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. You see, Peter and John were noticeably different, not just because they had been physically with Jesus, but what is implied is their proximity to Jesus has changed them in such a way where it is noticeable. It had a unique effect. You see, next week, Peter's going to offend us knowers like me. And this week, he says something which might offend you feelers. And he says this, that you cannot expect to feel the grace and peace of Jesus if you do not seek to know Jesus. Peter is calling you for the sake of your emotions to dig your hand deep into a clear understanding of what happens between God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son, which brings you peace. He wants you to understand with greater clarity the way in which your sin has separated you, in which God has set forth this plan of redemption where Jesus was the first one up to say, I will do it. I will die for my brothers and give them my righteousness so that they might be, John 17, with us and share all that we have. That's Jesus' high priestly prayer. How intimate is Jesus inviting us? How intimate of a relationship is he inviting us into? The exact same relationship the Trinity had. It's wonderfully intimate. It's the most awkward intimacy we can imagine. It's for our good. And Peter is saying, know it. Know the Jesus who brings you into the most inner room of the most wonderful family. Why should we know more about Jesus? Because the more we know about the person and work of Jesus, the greater our confidence we will have that he is sufficient even when we feel that we are not. Now for some of us, I recognize, because it's modeled poorly, that sometimes knowledge is perceived as the enemy of emotion. That in learning about things, those things become nothing but an object to be observed. They become dead and impersonal, and we just kind of scrutinize or study them scientifically. But Peter here shows that that's a false contradiction. That comes not from knowing God, but from knowing things that are less than God. In fact, it's actually in seeking to know God and Jesus Christ that we better experience him emotionally. It's better that our grace and peace are multiplied to endure in a hostile world. Meaning this, that to put faith once in Jesus at conversion 
and then to spend the rest of your life at that same level of knowledge is to be a spouse who marries your spouse on the wedding day and for the rest of the relationship gives up ever dating them, ever wanting to know them more or to be known more by them. But what is faith? That was an important question. If faith is a response to Jesus' wonderful righteousness, if faith is a response to him being everything that we are not, then wouldn't we, like a smitten spouse, seek to know him more and more inside of our marriage? Wouldn't we want to know what it feels like to be loved by this person? What pleases him? How he responds in trial? How he takes care of us when things are hard. You see, theology is simply the study of God, and here Peter is calling you to be a theologian. He's calling us to know God. And a call to know God is not some call to abstract theories of atonement and data that's abstract. What he's saying is that as Christians, you have the privilege of conversion, which allows you to know God not as a biographer, but as a spouse. You see, a biographer might be able to tell you more historical abstract data about your spouse than you can. In fact, I know they could do that for my wife, Sarah, better than I can. I was thinking as I was writing this sermon, I don't know who her second grade teacher was. I don't know the address of her first house in Montana. I don't know the extent of broken bones she has. I realized I don't even know, do you have your tonsils out, sweetheart? No, you have your tonsils. My wife has her tonsils. Eat that, biographer. But the truth is, someone can observe my wife from the outside, and they can get all the points of data right. But, as her husband, I'm able to say what no biographer can, what it feels like to be her husband. What the experience is like to be loved by her, cared for by her. To know what causes her to feel safe, cherished, blessed. To know specifically for my wife and not for Jesus what makes her fearful and how she seeks to comfort me in my fears. You see, Christians are not called to study God from the outside. We have the privilege, by faith and righteousness applied, to know him from the inside. Because Jesus' righteousness has brought us there. God is emotionally for us as his son because of the work of his son. And so we get to know this in a wonderful joy where it is exciting for us to get to know the never-ending span of our Savior that we might want to desperately know your spouse more and more is the same way where we ought to know Jesus more and more. You see, some of us read our Bibles until we're saved and then we think we know it. We've got it. I've heard the gospel a thousand times. But from a biblical writer's perspective, from an apostolic perspective, Peter himself says that it's when you're saved you need your Bible most. It's when you understand the depth of this relationship for you that you also understand what you don't know. And now is the time for you as a Christian covered by the righteousness of Christ made accessible to you by faith in who he is to lay down the pen of a scholar and pick up the ring of a spouse and know that Jesus relationally, emotionally, in every circumstance of life. We know God is pleased with us because Jesus, the righteous one, died for us. 
And look at how the Holy Spirit, look at the, the, the way in which the triune effects of God help us to do this. This is John 16, verses 13 through 14. Here Jesus is speaking about when the Spirit of truth comes. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit coming, which happens in Acts 2. He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all of them have set forth to bring us a greater knowledge of the God who saved us, because in knowing the God who saved us, we have more confidence that we are truly saved, and we have more affection in our heart to love him with everything. You see, we want to know Jesus more because true knowledge, gospel knowledge, does not inflate the head, it inflames the heart. So what does this look like for us to do this? We see it clearly here that we ought to know him if we want grace and peace. In a time of controversial politics, coronavirus concerns, an election year, maybe your house doesn't have air conditioning, we know how easy it is to be unsettled. But here is peace multiplied in Jesus Christ. So what does this look like? First, I'm going to give you three ways. First, be saved by Jesus. If you have no desire to know Jesus, if you have no affection for Jesus, yet you claim to be one who is saved by Jesus, it might be, I want to grant you pause, that you might not know Jesus because you have not been saved by Jesus. That in some way, you might still be banking on part of Jesus' scorecard and part of your scorecard. But to be saved by Jesus is to throw ours to the trash and take his righteousness in our place. Take it by faith. There is no one in this world like Jesus whether you're aware of it or not, if you're listening in here as a believer or as a non-Christian or online, you are far more broken than you can ever imagine, and God is far more wonderful than you can ever fathom, and Jesus takes our brokenness and pulls us into the reality of this unfathomable God of grace who has set forth to love you in his Son. If you want to know this Jesus, you can't know him from the outside. Repent and believe. Turn from your sins and respond in faith and realize that in that you have been changed. You have been converted. You stand in the new power of grace and not the old work of labor. Here in salvation is rest from the work of life and proving our own in the righteousness of Jesus. Here is love in a loveless world. Here is security on changing sands. Here is peace amidst a storm, a savior in all of life. I can't help think of the old hymn, uh, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. I'm so glad I learned to trust thee, precious Jesus, savior, friend, and I know that thou art with me and will be with me till the end. Man, this Jesus is what you need. Not in a trivial or mechanical way, but an intimate, relational, life-giving way. If you have never considered this, don't leave here today without doing that. I know there's social distancing and all of this, but if you are here and you have never responded to this, talk to somebody afterwards, find an elder. We'll have badges or we'll be at the doors. Talk to us, talk to me. If you're online, uh, email us, get in contact. We want you to know the wonder of this Jesus, first and foremost, by being saved by Jesus. Secondly, seek to know him in his word. 
We want to be saved by Jesus, and then we want to seek to know him in his word. And Peter's going to circle back to this theme here in a couple weeks, but look at what Jesus himself says to Pharisees uh, when they are interacting with him. This is John 5, 39 through 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them they have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So here's the truth in part one, right? If we're looking at the scriptures, what's it meant to do? Not to give you good morals, but to lead you to Jesus. But when we see what Jesus is saying, he's saying all of scripture testifies to the eternal life, which is me. When we read scripture, we are reading the love story of a God who from day whatever Adam and Eve sinned until the day whenever Jesus comes back is wooing his people back to him by his faithful king. This is a story of God's great affection for people who had no affection for him. When we encounter God's word, we get the privilege of learning about the nature of God who saves broken people. And don't get me wrong, Bible reading is difficult. Just like any book, if you want to read Shakespeare, if you want to read Flannery O'Connor, if you want to read J.K. Rowling, it takes time to get used to what is being written. It takes time to get into the story. And if you struggle with reading your Bible, I give you the same charge. Don't leave here today without asking for help. Our hope is that all of our members are able to help you read the Bible. And so ask somebody to sit down at coffee and explain the Bible to them, to read through the Gospel of Mark with you. This is intimidating for you. You have the wonderful privilege in a COVID world of joining digitally. Every Wednesday, we have a Bible reading group at noon. You can get a link on the website. We just discuss what we're reading in the Bible. Every Monday morning, we do a Facebook Live devotional that you could catch on Facebook, or you could also catch on our podcast that help us think through this more intimately. But don't neglect the joy of knowing Jesus in his word. Lastly, pray. I just saw John Frame. He's 80 years old. He's a theologian. He says at 80, he's never been more convinced of the mystery of God. In all of the pages and pages and pages he's written, he says, there's still more I don't know. Which is why we must pray that God opens our eyes to know the endless life of knowing Jesus. That there will always, each year you have the reward of knowing Jesus better than you did last year, but none of the terror of thinking that's going to run out. When you get a good ice cream cone, you enjoy every lick. But each lick, it gets smaller and smaller. This is not so with our Savior. Pray that God gives us that appetite to know it for all of eternity. And I want to close with this illustration by asking this question. Why should we seek to know Jesus and trust in his righteousness? In other words, why is it that we should know the quality of the king who saved us. What practical implication could this have on our life? Can we just say that he's good enough? Can we just say that he's sufficient? Why ought we to know not only who he is, but how he has saved us? Well, in 2009, a U.S. airway flight had to make an emergency landing on the Hudson River in New York City. The captain was Captain Chesley Solenberger. He skillfully, miraculously landed the plane on the river. Maybe you saw the movie, Soli. All 155 people who were on board survived the landing. And if you were on that flight, you saw him as nothing more than a savior. You were so grateful that he landed that plane. And yet, Solenberger was put on trial by the FAA. Why? Because even though he landed the plane safely, They wanted to see if it was his fault that the plane was crashing. In other words, what was on trial that day was the quality of Solenberger 
as a pilot? Was he a bad pilot who, even though he landed safely, could have been blamed for his fault? Or was he a good pilot who ought to be praised for his salvation? You see, the world does the same thing for Christians when it comes to Jesus. Inside this room, you might rejoice at the good news of the gospel. But perhaps even before you get to the doors, your experience or a scoffer might say, but you still crashed, right? I understand you got out safely, but you were hoping to land in Miami, not the Hudson. Sure, you might be saved, but at what cost? Do you think that maybe there might be a different pilot you want to get in the plane with? One who can actually get you to where you're going. You see, the world will call the quality of the Christian life to trial by putting the quality of your Christ on trial. And in those moments, it takes Christians like Peter is writing to to know the quality of your Savior. Those who have seen his love and therefore have seen him. We know his love because we've seen his cross. We've seen our own sin and we watched his blood wash it away. We know the quality of our Savior allows us to trust him even when experience and scoffers say that it's foolish. We know that the empty tomb today reminds us of infinite promises tomorrow. And that we can endure because we know him deeply. If you don't know the quality of Jesus, you might find yourself at risk of all of the challenges this world seeks to throw at you. But we can know him. And he has come precisely to be known. John Owen was a 17th century pastor who was a brilliant theologian, but had a deep heart for people to know this God. He wrote a book, the one book he wrote to lay people, which still can barely be understood by academics these days, was called Communing with the Triune God. Everything he studied about God, he wanted to pull other people and to have this communion with him. He was writing to a woman in his church who had recently lost a child. And I want to leave you with this quote which shows the kind of relief we can have in our hearts when we know the quality of our Savior even when life gets hard. He said to her, Christ is your pilot, and however the vessel, if tossed while he seems to be asleep, he will arise and rebuke these winds and waves in his own time. Do we have such a trust in the quality of our Savior? Because we know him. We know his love. We know his promises. And not even our emotion or the critiques of a fallen society can shake us from it. So let us know him and his righteousness for our joy and worship him because of it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come to both qualify us, not by our own works, but by yours, but also to comfort us in the person of Christ who is for us on the cross. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that simply knows this because we know you in salvation. And that everything else in all of our trials and all of our growth and all of our obedience and all of our sorrows will be downstream of that single experience which we know because we know you have given us righteousness by faith. You were perfect when we were not. You satisfied the God that our sins had made dissatisfied and earned judgment for. Lord, comfort our hearts by what we know. We pray this in your name. Amen.